since Jura's Victory Hall had something of a vibe about it just recently, as about 40 people sat through a day, a day of inspiring conversations and films. It was communities shaping the future, a self-sufficient community, a transition to a better world. Speakers including Hitting Rasmussen on Building and Transport, Peter Foote from Foot Waste Solutions, Datura person Rudin James talking about sustainable homes, Louise Costa Pell and her partner Les Pell talking about building a passive home at Rushworth. It also included a day in which school children were challenged to come up with an idea to create a work of art following the topic more self-sufficient living. The event, a day of inspiring conversations and films, was organised by Tatura Transition Towns. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging. Although the recent event was promoted as a film festival, films appeared to take a back seat as the speakers were so impressive and they dominated proceedings. Our first speaker is the Environment Manager from the City of Greater Shepparton, Sharon Terry. Let's have a listen now to what Sharon had to say. I should add that Sharon was referring to slides and so at times you have to imagine what she's pointing at. I'm going to talk to you today about the uh, climate emergency journey that uh, the community and quite a few members here in the audience have been involved in over a number of years. Uh, I'll talk about the climate emergency, the declaration and what we've done since then. First question is what is this climate emergency? Where has this come from? It's really based around the science and it's based on um, an event that happened here in the year 2000 when the uh, um, IPCC got together and really pulled out the resources together to understand where is the state of climate change and what is our future going to look like. They, at the time, there'd been some knowledge around the world, around governments about this impending crisis of climate change, but really nothing had been done. So scientists got together and said, okay, what, is it, what does our future look like if our emissions continue to increase at the way that they are, or a number of different scenarios? So this graph here, identifies the four different scenarios that the scientists um, predicted at the time. And it was all related to what temperature increase could they, were they predicting based on those emission scenarios. So at the time in the early 2000s, we really, most of us that were practitioners in this space felt that we'd end up sort of moving along this lower line here, which is a one degree increase in global temperatures. Um, we're now around here and we're very firmly lodged into this red line here. So at the heart of it, that's what the climate emergency is. We know that we've got the latest um, COP26 in Glasgow identified, we've really got this decade to make some significant changes around how we emit emissions, or the emissions that we emit, uh, unless um, to miss out or to avoid these higher temperatures. So those high temperatures mean that um, we have an increasingly unstable climate. I'm probably speaking to a very informed audience here, so I won't go into this too much. But what we know is that time's running out. We need to act pretty quickly. 
Locally, since, the year two, since that year 2000, we've had some really significant um, weather events happen to us that have been outside the norm and have been attributed to climate change. The first one, of course, was that millennial drought that broke in 2011 with a series of floods. Um, during that time um, preceding and post the uh, breaking of that drought, we've had uh, seven tornadoes have come through the municipality of varying degrees. We've had a number of really severe storms that have stripped roadside trees and on um, farms as well. We've had roofs come off houses, off sheds have been knocked down. We've had a number of floods. A lot of these floods are from localised heavy rainfall events. Those events we know are increasing and predicted to increase into the future. And, um, and the stormwater systems really struggle. How, I mean, you know, no stormwater system really can take this sort of water away. So we've been feeling those effects right here. The um, predictions from the year 2000 and consequent scientific predictions based on the science that's coming in has continued to show that these events are going to increase under existing emission scenarios. What we see here in the Goulburn Valley is, um, and for us here in Greater Shepparton, is that where our winters are drying out. We're in, a, we're in an unusual period at the moment, but on average our winters are drying out and our spring rains are drying out. And those autumn breaks, if anyone's on the land, you know those autumn breaks just don't come anymore. One of the things that um, hasn't really had much attention is um, this vector-borne diseases or the increase of diseases from climate change. And we're starting to see some impacts, impacts of that now. So at the moment we have Japanese encephalitis virus. It's typically a northern or a tropical disease that has come down into um, Victoria and climate change has been attributed to the movement of that disease. Okay, so the climate emergency. So we had a number of significant events happen leading up to 2019. Then we had those summer book, the bushfires of 2019, 2020. And uh, we all felt the impacts of those bushfires just through smoke here, but we'll be feeling the impacts from biodiversity loss for many, many decades to come. That event really, um, our councillors were on a summer break and came back from that summer break with a determination to really look at climate change and the impact for our community. In November of 2019, uh, the youth held a climate march and at that march they really strongly called for action and urgent action on climate change. There was around 200 people at that march. And uh, that all led to uh, in March in 2020, councillors declaring a climate emergency and adopting a 2030 net zero emissions for council's operations. So for the work that council does in terms of delivering the services to the community, we have a target now of a zero net emission by 2030. Greater Shepparton became the 30th Victorian council to declare a climate emergency and joined now just over 100 municipalities in Australia which is over 9 million people. And worldwide, there's over a billion people covered by jurisdictions that have declared a climate emergency. So I will just say the climate emergency came out of uh, local government elections in 2016. It started down in Darabin, uh, with the community being very active around um, addressing climate change. They were seeing some really significant impacts for their community and for their environment. So they really felt that it was time to take some urgent action around addressing climate change. Local government is one of those levels of government where we are very close to the community. We work together hand in hand on a number of different elements. 
So a number of people stood at that council election uh, period for, uh, to declare a climate emergency and a number of those got in. So at the very next, I think at their first council meeting or their second council meeting, they declared a climate emergency, the first in the world to do it. So since 2016, this has been the, um, the uh, very quick uptake of the, of the calls. So since then, um, councils developed and our councillors have adopted our 2030 uh, net zero emissions plan. We've got some work underway in there already. Um, one of the things that council did was to eliminate uh, carbon emissions from electricity use. Uh, so uh, all of council's electricity is now 100% renewable and that's um, fed through two new wind farms down in the Western District. We're undertaking um, a uh, process to remove all gas from council's operations. Some of that will be quite easy. Some of it will be a little bit more trickier, um, particularly for facilities like Aquamoves and SAM and our larger facilities that use boilers for heating. The council's fleet is being transitioned to electric vehicles. Most of you will have seen, we've been here to, in TAT at the um, launch of the Zero Carbon, our TAT Carbon Group. Um, we had a couple of electric vehicles there, so that's uh, working. That's for, it's quite easy to do that for, for passenger cars. They're available now. Um, as we move into the heavy vehicle machinery, there are a few challenges there, but we expect that to change as we get closer to that 2030 period. Uh, the waste strategy is moving into a circular economy strategy. Uh, our finance department are making some really strong moves around decarbonising um, the finance um, side of things and putting in place um, processes to make sure that there's ethical um, investment going on there. Making changes in how we procure some products. So a really exciting example is um, recycled content in um, asphalt and in concrete as well. So really starting to make some great moves there. One of the challenges there is that locally, and there's not a lot of producers who are producing this type of material, um, but we're hoping that there'll be a bit of a loop process going on. Um, if council wants to buy that, hopefully some of the local producers will be able to provide that product for us. And then that will feed on for other businesses to be able to access those materials as well. And a number of policies are being changed as well. So the Climate Emergency Action Plan, this, as I mentioned before, this, this um, the net zero emissions plan is a council plan, so it's how council provides a service, it's the emissions that council emit for the services that we provide to the community. The uh, Climate Emergency Action Plan is very much a partnership plan with community, with our businesses and with our industries. Um, again, it's recognising that no one group is going to be able to solve this. We're all going to have to come together and find the solutions because a lot of the solutions aren't actually there yet or they're not quite ready to pick up. So um, the plan itself is a response to the declaration. It's to give us a plan. It literally is planning forward into the future so that we can address both the emissions that we emit but also how we adapt to climate change, dealing with all those negative um, weather-driven influences. It's both mitigation and adaptation, and uh, the actions in the plan are for council to implement, but it's there to support the community, business and industry to move towards being able to adapt and also to mitigate their emissions. So um, the plan is based on uh, the latest science that was available to us. Um, I, think the IP I think the Glasgow had come out just as we were finalising the final plan, the Glasgow um, conference. Part of the process was very much talking to industry groups, talking to businesses and talking to community to understand what's needed out there. What are you doing now and what do you need to do more and how does council help you to do that? 
So we had um, a fairly structured um, process in terms of trying to talk to people. We are in COVID at the time. I think that August outbreak in, in 2021 really sort of hampered a bit of our consultation. But we went online like all of us did and um, battled through. Overseeing the entire process was a community steering group, which are a number of members here today. Uh, we also had um, some focus groups, so from the agricultural sector, from business and community groups, and we had some special conversations with the Yorta Yorta Nations as well. For each of those um, groups, we had a uh, workshop, um, and that really set the foundations for the development of the plan. Uh, and then we also did a number of workshops internally in council as well. So the plan was adopted in June of this year, <clears throat> so it's quite, quite new. It's a bit of an overview of what's inside the plan. We talk about the science, we talk about from a global perspective right down to our local conditions. Um, we talk about the estimated community emissions, Council's response to climate change, what Council's done so far and where we will go into the future, all of the different roles around responding to the climate emergency. There's four strategic priorities within the plan and there's a fairly detailed action table as well. We'll review the plan in 2025 because we know that things will change by the time we get to 2025 and we'll report against it annually. So just a quick um, discussion about community emissions. It's really very difficult to get an, an a accurate understanding of what community emissions are and I think everyone here can probably understand why that's the case. But Ironbark, who actually came on board as the technical support for the climate emergency plan, have a tool that's freely available online. It's called a snapshot tool, so I encourage you to have a look. It compares, it looks at every single local government around Australia and has an, a, um, an estimate of their emissions. It's based on data from the federal government and from the state government, and there is some local data that's brought into that as well, and they're looking to update this over time. But for us locally, we have a, around 1.5 million tonnes of emissions that we emit every year. A bit of a break up there, about 24% is attributed to agriculture, about 2% to waste, 13% to transport, 9% uh, to gas and 52% to electricity. Okay, so just a quick run through the, each of the priorities. So these, again, these are actions that Council will undertake to support the community. So there's a lot of actions there around advocating. The, every, we heard from people that we have a really strong role to advocate um, both to uh, other levels of government but to business and to community. So a bit of a circular response there. And supporting local innovative solutions. Accelerating our zero emission transition. Um, there's a number of actions in there as well as you can imagine. We heard a lot of feedback around how does council support um, residents and businesses to, to reduce their emissions. I guess we've come to a time where we didn't think this would happen, but energy prices have just escalated. So we didn't really know that this would happen now, but the need for this has really switched just, not just from a carbon emission point of view, but also from a financial point of view. Transport is a really big feature I know of today um, and it's a big feature of our, uh, it's a big portion of our emissions as well. And green building design is something that's in the news at the moment. The National um, Construction Code has just been updated and they've recommended a seven star energy rating minimum for all residential buildings. So that will go some way to not only making our buildings much more energy efficient, so reducing our cost and our emissions, but also a much more comfortable place for us to live, which is really important. 
Uh, the third one is building a climate resilient community. This is really thinking about adaptation. How do we prepare ourselves for those future weather events that are going to come? Um, and make sure that we're uh, in the best position to ride them out and to bounce back from them. The agricultural sector got their own, their own um, priority in the, in the plan and that's in recognition of the, the influence that agriculture has as a driver for our economy. It's not only our economy, it's also our social uh, networks as well. So we released the draft plan and received some really strong response from the plan. Um, most of our responders um, said that they believe that climate change has affected them in some way, so that was 73%. And more than 83% said that they're willing to take more action if they had further opportunities. Okay, so what's happening now? The plan's been adopted, as I mentioned. It's on our website if you wanted to have a look. Um, some of the things that council's been doing is um, there are two public fast charges uh, in the municipality. One's in Rootner, one's in Shepparton, and there are more coming on board. The reason for council to support those charges coming in was really to encourage private uh, charging providers to come to Shepparton, and that has happened really quite quickly. Um, the urban forest strategy has a uh, target of increasing the canopy of our street trees to 40% and that's being reviewed uh, at the moment. And the One Tree Per Child project, which has moved on from National Tree Day, One Tree Per Child, we've just celebrated our 100,000th planting um, at the start of this year and every year we're planting 25,000 plants. Uh, so we'll reach the next 100,000 in another five years time. Uh, council offers a number of sustainability grants, both community and business. Um, we're partnering with the, the environment team, we're partnering with the community development team to support a youth climate leadership group. Uh, and uh, we're jumping on board with all of the um, state government incentives and supporting our community to access those. And so one of the most recent ones has been community building energy audits with um, Goulburn Valley Community Energy. So the future looks really quite bright. I, it, this is about opportunities. The planning is about finding those opportunities to manage the future, both the transition to a decarbonised economy, but also around um, how we adapt. Um, so the new federal um, government given us a different direction in terms of how we respond to climate change. Uh, and the state government have quite a strong response around climate change. So there's some really good opportunities in terms of funding being available, not only for local government, but for community groups, for residences, for, build, uh, for businesses. Some really interesting work going on around the electricity grid, the network. We know that it is being designed to have very centralised generation of power and then to feed that out to us. It's really, it's been changing for 20, 25 years really, and it's rapidly changing, and those changes have been happening about five years. So um, there's a lot of work going on both from federal and state government around what does a new grid look like, where that goes, and what the implications are for that. Um, electric vehicles are becoming more and more affordable, more and more charging opportunities. Um, so that's something that we can all do quite quickly, um, is to look at our um, cars. You'll find a link to the City of Greater Shepparton's Climate Emergency Action Plan in the show notes. The next speaker was Henning Rasmussen and he talked about buildings and transport and he discussed making them both resilient and sustainable. Henning recommended to those in the audience that they simply go to the website 
your home and they will find details about everything he talked about. The next speaker was Royden James. Royden has had a long career in local government and was in fact the Shire Secretary of the former Rodney Shire. Rodney Shire was based in Tatura. Royden and his wife have built a new house in Tatura, a new house which has been remarkably successful. He's made special effort to orientate it to the north. He's insulated most everything, double glazed his windows, and his power bills have been virtually naught while he's been in credit. Let's have a listen now to what Rawdon has to say. Um, I feel that this is a little bit um, going from the macro after we've what, seen, what we've seen to the, to the micro, um, which is the um, experience that Lee and I have had um, with building um, our most recent home. Um, just a little bit of history. Um, I built our first home back in the early 1970s um, and even back then I realised the, the benefit of, ha of um, having a northerly uh, orientation and that knowledge I guess came from visiting some um, display homes in that metropolis of Melbourne um, and one that really impressed me was um, by a company called Fashion and they emphasised the importance of um, northerly orientation. I've built, uh, I think, one, two, three, four houses since then. All of them have had northerly orientation and Lee, my wife, has been involved with um, me in building two of those and Lee um, was involved in building a um, a house, and I would say it was probably at its time the most environmentally friendly house in TAC. Um, did Keith actually design it? So it was designed by Keith Elbrecht um, and back in the early 1980s. So we have a, a history of having been um, understanding the importance of northerly orientation. So. Um, we did build a home in, in Murchison, but we decided to move, because we're ageing, we decided to downsize. Um, so we um, bought a block of land up on the Northlinks estate in, um, in Tatura. So north is down here, it's upside down. We deliberately chose a block with a northerly aspect. This is east, obviously, and it only has a eight metre frontage, our block. So we were not interested in making a statement to the rest of the world. Um, as far as the appearance of the front of the house was concerned, we were really interested in this northerly orientation. Um, it, it has some disadvantages. Um, just for those that aren't aware, this is actually Hilltop, the golf course here. Um, so this is west, and I'll explain the disadvantages of the house um, as I go through. But having that northerly orientation was essential to us. This area along here is all our living area, um, bedrooms along the, the back. So the first thing that um, after having chosen our northerly aspect, um, we had some non-negotiables in, in, in the build. The first is um, we um, insisted on having 900 millimetre eaves. Um, and also these, you can't see them all that well, but that's a window there, quite a large window, and there's also another large window there into our living area, which is there. So that was the first um, non-negotiable. We insisted on having a light coloured roof, so it's actually zinc loom. 
you can't see it from the street. Just about everybody else around us has got dark roofs, but ours is um, uh, zinc -aloom. The house um, is fully insulated. That's not a very exciting looking photo. Um, but when we built the house, we've actually got a, a two and a half car garage. Um, so it's quite large. And we said to the builder that we wanted the garage insulated. And he looked at us, he said, what do you mean you want your garage insulated? And I said, we want it insulated. <laughs> so walls and ceiling, which uh, he couldn't understand why we'd want to do that, but we did. This is actually the um, roller doors or panel doors. They're insulated as well. So the whole garage is insulated. Someone in the audience asked Royden why he wanted the whole garage insulated. Oh, uh, why? Because um, I, I was concerned about the garage heating up or cooling down and that transferring into the house. Yep. Um, this isn't an advertisement for Aldi. Um, we actually have double glazed windows throughout. And the reason I um, showed or have this image, is you might be able to see a slight reflection there. Um, so that's just trying to demonstrate to you that in fact it is a double glazed window, in fact that's a sliding door. We have double glazing right throughout the house. Um, at one stage we were trying to cut costs as um, everybody does I guess and the builder suggested to us that we should remove the double glazed windows from the south of the house. Now to us that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, and we decided not to do that so we went with double glazing um, all the way. We also have um, recycled bricks. Um, I guess that was as much about aesthetics as it was about um, the environment. Um, but interestingly, there is a covenant on the area that we built which says that we were not allowed to use recycled materials. Um, we totally ignored it. We have a 10.6 kilowatt uh, solar system. Um, as well as a, a, a Tesla battery. We also have a, um, a CO2 hot water heat pump, um, which is uh, this, this thing here, that's the, that's the heat pump, this is the tank. Uh, it's incredibly efficient. Um, it only uses something like about 800 watts of power. It comes on, it's timed to um, come on about 10 o'clock in the morning. You can, you can uh, program it, but it comes on at about 10 o'clock at the morning to um, start to use the power of the sun. It normally runs for about two hours. Um, that's not a very good image. I actually produced that to show you just how much power it is using, but it's not, it hasn't come out too much, I'm sorry, but it's about um, 800 watts it uses uh, over a two-hour period, so about 1.6 kilowatts to, to heat the water up to the necessary temperature. We also have um, um, ducted reverse cycle uh, air conditioning, um, and uh, as well as in the small thing, it's an induction cooktop, which I'll get to that in a moment. This thing is easily the biggest consumer of our power. Um, we can run it um, for about two hours uh, at night on the battery. Once uh, the two hours is up, we, we're going back on, onto grid power. But as I understand it, it's still, it's still better or cheaper to run than, uh, than gas. Oh, sorry, the battery is about 13.4 or 13.5 kilowatts, Terry. Um, now, I did mention about this, this thing um, rather than gas.
we don't have any gas whatsoever. But what was interesting is when we um, were building the house, the builder came from Cobram and we, um, every time we went to see him, he said, oh, you haven't told us where you want the gas point. And we said, we don't want gas. We're not having gas. And he said, you have to have gas. And I said, no, we're not having gas. So we didn't resolve where we were putting it. Next time we went up, he said, you haven't decided where you're having the gas. Eventually, we got the message through to him that we're not having gas. Um, but what we had to do was uh, have a compromise, which is called tank to water, uh, sorry, tank to toilet, which uh, you may well have heard of. Um, apparently, if you have tank to toilet, then you can forego the necessity to have gas. So we actually installed a tank and it's 30,000 litres. So it's a fair, fair sized tank. Um, the good thing about it is that with the pump, we have really good water pressure. Um, we can top it up from the town supply if um, we need to. We only just received our water bill, what, yesterday or the day before? Um, and our water consumption for um, the last quarter, the consumption component cost us $4.90 because the whole house is on, on tank water. We don't, we're not using town water at all uh, in the house unless the tank gets down below a certain point and then we have to top it up with town water. That does happen during summer, but we're using uh, the tank um, for just about um, all our water supplies. Our garden doesn't look much yet, <laughs> but we have what uh, Lee likes to call edible gardens. This probably isn't a very good photo, but this area here is actually the, the, um, the front of the house, and uh, you can't really see them, but there's a number of fruit trees in there. All those greenish, reddish things are actually self-sown lettuces. Um, and I think it's fair to say that our front garden is not really consistent with the front gardens in the rest of the estate. <laughs> but uh, we quite, it looks okay. Um, uh, at the back of the house is um, some raised beds, um, which, and we also have uh, composting. So we've got a compost uh, bin there, which is actually in behind the tank, um, another compost and, and a worm farm. Um, so, there were some compromises um, that we had to go through. Um, first of all, the back of the house um, faces out over hilltop. So, for those people who may or may not play golf, that's the fourth and the eighth green. Um, so, the back of the house is facing directly west. Now, that, that has its problems, but we always knew that that was going to be the case. But what we did is we have a very large El Fresco area. So this is west here. Um, this brick wall here is actually the master bedroom, but we only put a very small window there um, so that we didn't have the problem of the sun beating in um, uh, during summer in particular. Um, it's, not a, it's not a problem at this time of year, but we did realise, but that was a compromise. We realised that um, for the block that we had, for the view that we had, um, that's something we had to live with, but we, we've managed it quite well. That's actually a blind there that we had installed, which we can drop up and down just to alleviate the um, sun coming in. That's the front of the house, so as you can see, it, it's not really a statement. <laughs> that's all you can see, basically. Um, but from the um, 
golf course, this is what the, the back of the house looks like, so um, it looks far more reasonable from the golf course than it does from the front. This doesn't show much, but what I should have explained earlier when I was talking about the, um, the Tesla battery is we, we um, have a, an arrangement with Tesla which, call, which is called the Tesla Energy Plan. So under that plan, um, it allows them to draw from our battery um, from time to time um, if the grid requires it. In exchange for that, we get a, a, um, a $200 credit each year from Tesla. They increased our warranty from 10 to 15 years. But the really interesting thing about it is they've got algorithms. I don't know what an algorithm is, but they tell me they've got algorithms that actually manage our power. So it, it will actually charge our battery um, at the best times or, or will draw um, power from our battery at the best times. Um, they must have somebody really smart somewhere doing it, but it's incredible what it does um, and how it actually manages our uh, power bill. Um, we've only just recently received our most re uh, power bill um, and we're still um, after being in the house for now about 18 months, we are about $200 in, in credit with our power supplier. So it's not costing us anything whatsoever um, to, have the, to have what we've got, the, um, even with that massive air conditioner, we, we're still in front. And I guess I, there's, I've got a couple of hobby horses, something that really gets, um, annoys me, or no, it doesn't annoy me, I just do not understand why there are not controls over how houses are actually built. I, um, as Henning was saying, using northerly orientation to me should be compulsory. Um, and having decent eaves on um, should be compulsory. Houses that are built facing north with no eaves, I just cannot understand it. It's totally beyond my <laughs> um, comprehension. So that's a real hobby horse I have. The other horse, hobby horse I have is, of course, being forced to uh, have gas, but I understand that's been changed anyway. So. A rather special guest in a late addition to the program was 16-year-old Rachel Bruckner from Euroa, who'd written a book about climate change. All proceeds from the book are donated to the charity Planet Ark. She talked about her experience of putting the book together, illustrating it, authoring it, and through the process of draft she used to create a book. Rachel also partakes in community climate activities, including school-based opportunities, such as work experience at the University of Melbourne, where she recorded a soon-to-be-released podcast and a blog on sustainability and resilient cities. Let's listen now to Rachel. The PowerPoint's just pictures of drafts from my book and stuff. It's not statistics, nothing special. Figured everybody wanted to have lunch. They didn't need to hear me rattling on about how much watercolour I used per page or something like that. Um, so the idea came around and I should really alter this story because I have a few teachers that live in Tatura and it's going to get back because there was one subject that I'm not going to say anymore that I really wanted to get out of. So last year, I'm in year 10 now, so when I was in year 9, I, um, semester 2 I said I need to get out of this subject, I'm not learning anything. So I changed into an expeditions, which is four periods on a Wednesday where we got to do this storytelling class and most of the kids gave up halfway through. I kept going and the teacher said, look, this is really great, 
we'll give the opportunity to take it to the URL printers, we'll get it printed. So here I was maybe two or so months before the end of school, trying to finish up all my drafts, um, watercolouring at home. A lot of the drafts are folded in half because I was taking all this stuff back and forth, school, home, school, home, and I was like, I've got to get this done. I don't want to profit. Everything um, that I've sold has gone to charity, to Planet Ark. Um, I've sold probably 150 books. I'm not sure. I didn't keep track. There are some for sale today, $10. That's not the point. I just wanted to come meet people. Um, it's the stories about an alien that comes to Earth and she's talking in the sun and the sky and the stars and all these great things, saying, why do you all look so sad? They say it's humans burning coal, burning fuel, um, making plastics and stuff. And so she's going around fixing everything. And then um, she gets to the ocean. The ocean says, look, I've got plastic and I can't get rid of it. It's making me really, really sick. And um, she tries to fix it. She can't fix it. The whole book rhymes, by the way. <laughs> um, and then she looks and looks and looks and finds out that it's us. I need your help. I need you to help me pick up rubbish. And that's the book. Um, my mum sold them for me at the farmer's market in Euroa because I was working at the bakery. She's so Shirley Saywell, she's probably a familiar name to everybody, or well, most people, she um, has been a big supporter for me. Um, the books get printed, they, they go through her account, I just pay her back with the money that I've made from the books. And um, yeah, I've gone to the primary schools, read to them, um, the, some books have been donated to the primary schools and I feel like I had a lot more to say, but I don't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> um, see, here, that's at home. There's even a Christmas present in the top right-hand corner. Uh, and <laughs> it took me probably a month and a half to do all the paintings. I'm on my second book now. My aunt has authored it, uh, and I'm doing the illustrations. It's about an echidna has rubbish stuck to its spikes and all the bush friends are repurposing the rubbish. So, for example, uh, the koala finds a mask and turns it into a hammock. Just all, <laughs> just all sorts of fun things. Um, and I plan on finishing the front and back cover this weekend. So hopefully it'll be up and printed by October where I've been invited to some children's week somewhere in the Shire. <laughs> I don't know, I get emails all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, and I recently went down to Melbourne Uni for work experience. They also love my book and I made a podcast, well, helped record a podcast about sustainability and resilient cities and then I wrote a blog on that and hopefully they're also going to be published through Melbourne Uni. Um, <laughs> still going and it has changed slides. Um, this is a perfect example of a mistake. Completely forgot I wanted the background to have more colour in it. So I tried to do it and then watercolour just bled together. So um, I went and redid that. The next slide will come up hopefully. And um, so this is the magic page where she fixes everything. Everything magically changes. 
and yeah, so these are now the final pictures that are in the, in the book. Uh, I'm pretty proud of them, but yeah, I haven't had much opportunity yet. This is really the start of being involved in the, in the community. I was talking to um, Shirley the other day about possibly uh, having my book uh, be published and supporting a council uh, activity, I guess. And I was hoping that perhaps, because I work at a bakery, the amount of single-use plastics that we have to throw in the bin each night is terrible. And my mum for a while was collecting them and the primary schools get uh, um, sport equipment for a certain amount of kilos of plastic bags. So I was hoping that perhaps when that finishes, we can transition onto a new space in Euroa where we can take single-use <coughs> plastics because they're all in Chef or something like that and nobody's going to you know, get all their shopping bags, go up to Chef and say, here's mine. It just it doesn't work like that for a lot of communities. So I was hoping to set up a place in Euroa somewhere and as part of that, my year 11 art final, even though I'm in year 10, I've fast-tracked, is um, I'm crocheting a massive blanket out of single-use plastics. Just started that, it's very exciting. I will send pictures if anybody wants to see. Um, An audience member quizzed Rachel, wanting to know what created her interest in sustainability. Um, I don't know, I guess it was always, when I was at primary school, there was a big thing around, you know, you can't litter, put your rubbish in the bin. And we were little, so we understood that. We're like, we're going to get in trouble, can't do that. You, when I went to high school, teenagers don't listen. <laughs> I'm sure Dad will agree with me there. <laughs> um, but um, there was rubbish everywhere, and I just thought that really wasn't fair. So if I maybe tried to set it into little kids so that it's more of a value not doing what you're told, Perhaps it would be helpful, yeah. Thanks, Rachel. I admire what you're doing. Next, we hear from Peter Foote from Foot Waste Solutions in Shepparton. Peter began what is now Foot Waste Solutions about 30 years ago with one small truck. He now has a fleet of large trucks and is poised to open a new $8 million shed, as he calls it. The new purpose-built shed responds in every way to all the needs and wants and needs of a waste solutions company. The new shed sits next to an equally new office block, an office block that is linked in every way to the modern technology that makes the world go round. Let's listen now to a little of what Peter had to say. All the stuff that I've done has been mainly business to business and it's all been on the old handshake. Don't pick up your rubbish, take it away, or deal with things that you have. Us as a small business probably had to do the harder things first before we can get to the easier things. So it was a different tact, I suppose. Um, different tact in the multinationals will only want to do the easy things and stick to the easy things. Where we, for us to get traction, we had to try to, you know, get a bucket recycle type thing. You know, compared to the multinational sale, they wouldn't even deal with those people. They would, or they'd deal with them, but they just take it to the tip, you know, and charge them a whack of money. So, uh, probably a big break in us in our. If you want to flick through, mate, the next next one. The biggest break in our in our probably life is I've, I come across a um, 
come across a guy by the name of Don Kendall who worked in um, worked in, in in for Tom Garrett back in those days. And Tom Garrett was a really big business and a, and a successful business. And uh, he wanted to join forces, or we joined forces, and we went into business together, and we won the won the Morrishire waste contract. It was a ten-year contract. It was under um, when the commissioners come in, so it was one of the first things that they uh, tended for. It was a joint contract between Morrishire and New South Wales Berrigan-Shire. and um, it was a it was a really different contract, I suppose. So we were lucky enough to win it, and um, that that. That partnership lasted for 10 years and I, I, as my business was growing, I had one, one employer at that time, as my business was growing, I said to Don, I said, I just can't, I can't do both or Jenny couldn't do both. So we had you know, young families and all those sorts of things. So we parted ways and for me to concentrate on this. Keep going, mate. So that was, that was that, sorry, that was my second trade, that's the first trade. So what we do now is change. We're into front lift rubbish trucks in, in a big way. So we run about 20, 20, 22 or 23 different types of trucks doing all sorts of different types of rubbish. You know, truck, that truck, the back of that truck there, you see that's, that's worth about 550000 now. So the technology that goes into them and all those sorts of things, so it's big money. So every time we make a decision, we're talking big money. So when people want to say, oh, you know, we should be able to build a plastics plant or we should be able to do this or we should be able to build, run electric trucks or change the earth, think about the money and where's the money come from. So when, when you know, Barnaby Joyce talks about, you know, let's shut down the coal industry, that's fine. What, what's going to replace it? Do you really actually know how much it's going to cost us to change it? And that's the big economic thing that no one really thinks about. So we can sit in, in rooms, and I, and I suppose when, when I come across John in Pettigrew a number of years ago, you're going to have a symposium, and I went to the symposium and I sat up the back and you know, in the waste and listened to you know, Rob Jell and all these people's talk, and it was fantastic. It was one of the greatest things that changed the way I thought about my business think about differently, think outside the square. So it was a, it was a, you know, how, how things roll with you. That I had, a, you know, a mad scientist knocked on my front door one day. He said, someone told me to come and see you, Peter Foot. I said, what for? And he said, oh, I know you do some different things, but I want to burn peach stones to make electricity. I said, oh, yeah, right, eh? <laughs> Who comes up with those weird ideas, you know? Anyway, I stuck with him. He'd end up being a mad scientist, you know, like he was a mad scientist and had no money, you know. So who, who's the sucker who comes along, you know, and I handballed him some money and away he went, you know. And I lost me money. I haven't, I haven't seen him since. But I, was, I had a phone call the other, you know, a number of weeks ago that say he's had a, had a stroke and he's bent up and, and, and not, not travelling real well. But, but you know what? He made a gasifier. He went to Coca-Cola, who owned SBC, and he said, I can generate your electricity using your peach stones to generate electricity, heat, power, and heat of water. What they do? Pulled out the coke coal, went for the bloke, pulled the file out. This is what we pay. At that point, it was I think it was about eight cents a kilowatt hour for power. That was the end of the that was the end of the conversation. So his dream was gone. Never going to make it. Twenty years on, he would have made it. That's the difference. So it's amazing how things change in time. We're, we're big on you know, supporting local clubs, sporting clubs, football clubs, bowls clubs, you name it. We do a lot in, um, in trying to employ people you know, that come out of the you know, disability areas where they employ, for me, or I'll marry, say, SPC up with uh, GV Connect 
and they employ them for a number of years, a number of times. You know, undoing tops of jars and you know, taking jam out of jars and things like that. We've come up with ideas, really different ideas of how to recycle stuff. Pickles, you know, 30 tonne of pickles comes out of Melbourne. Somebody rings me, can you do this? I said, oh, we can, don't know how we do it. He said, oh, well, I said, it's gonna cost you X amount of dollars to do it. And oh, why is it gonna cost me that? I said, well, mate, you've got the waste, you've got the problem. But I'm unemployed disabled people, they've got to be paid and they expect to be paid the same amount of money as what I do. So you're going to be charged. You've got two choices, take the tip and cost you a whack of money or we card up here and we do this, you know, the environmentally good thing for it. So we, you know, we set about it, brought some people in and they loved it. They, you know, they just really, really embraced something really simple of opening the tops, tipping the pickles out. But we brought fish and chips in and all those sorts of things at lunchtime and made, it, made their day that much more enjoyable. They wanted to keep coming back, you know, and they got really involved in what we, what we did, you know. So that was one point. Another point, we, I think the uh, city of Greater Shepparton changed the, 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 the lights, the street lights, into um, LEDs, you know. PowerCore did it. PowerCore, we are going to throw 5,000 lights out. And I did the numbers at the time, and I said to, them, I said to um, the regional waste manager, go back to PowerCore and ask them for some money because that money they would have spent would have went to landfill, but we've been able to recycle everything except for the, for the starter. Couldn't recycle it. GV Connect, we've got GV Connect involved in it. We did the transport and logistics to it. You know, the steel went to Future Metals. Plastics went into re, re, repurposing, I can't remember. It won a state, it won a state environmental award. Um, PowerCore, how much money do you reckon PowerCore gave to GV Connect? Zip, absolute zip. And you, you know, also wanted some tools to you know, make their life a bit easier, because you know, it was all, all handy, and they just loved it. Went for probably 12 months by the time they finished it, and it was all self-paying, any money that come out of it went back to GV Connect. So the recycling funds, you know, I, I did the logistics, nothing, so it was gonna cost nothing. All that, so it was a really good, really good thing for them, and they really enjoyed that sort of, that sort of stuff. So. The waste can absolutely employ people out of low, low socioeconomic groups. Um, you know, we have a lot of people who can't read or write. Come to a show, truck drivers, all those sorts of things. We train them to do that. Train them to use computers in their trucks. Um, you know, all those things that, that, that you know, in 10 years time, when they leave you, that they've, you know, they've taken a huge step in their lives, you know, so. That, that purpose and community, <coughs> it's, 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 the oh, that generates is massive. Sets us, sets us apart, you know, and, and we've got a name for it now, you know, so it pro probably, you know, it's, we do a, a bit of social media and uh, when we felt, sort of first got into social media, we, we, you know, did a lot. And I was walking in Jeff's shed one day, to a high, high static, you know, exhibition and people were going up and saying, I know you, we follow you. And why? You know, because you've got, you know, I've got a son that's a big bloke and he's got a big beard, that's one, but the other one is, you know, Sam Cook comes every Wednesday, hops in a truck with Kevin, or Kevin's just left us, who was 70 years of age, and away they go together to do their job, you know? And every place they went to, Sam made connections to every person. And everyone's got a story about Sam coming in their front door, of what's he done to their business, but what it's done for him. Because his brother, or his two brothers, get out of every morning, get out of bed and put on a orange top. So Sam now goes to bed early 
and then get up and put on a, an orange top. It's got his name on it. Always, it's very simple things in life that he's really attached himself to, you know. So it's really, it's, it's a really good thing. So we don't sell the story, or we put it up. We get a lot of feedback on it. It's not about that. It's just telling the story about what what the capabilities of what what can be achieved, I suppose. Over the journey, you know, 25 trucks or whatever. I've had great support from community, great support from businesses, and our footprint is growing. So we run from, say, you know, we're pushing into Broadford now, right around to Mansfield. Think about the Mansfield down to Benalla, up to Albury. Uh, Albury, say, all the, all, the, all the way down to Echuca, then sort of Echuca across to Seymour again, you know. So um, you've got about 5,500 commercial waste bins out, which you know, contain waste, um, general waste, your, your recycling being cardboard bins, and then you've got your, your, what we call commingled, mainly the three. The big change for us probably come along when SPC handed me a piece of paper one day and said, oh, Peter, can you quote on that? 200 bins, we've got no other, no other we've got uh, waste and recycling services, and that's it. I said, no other data? Shit, no, I haven't got any data. I said, well, how do I quote that? You know, I went home and stood it over. So I, I quoted it really differently. So, oh, hang on, before we start, we've got uh, on a Saturday, sorry, on a, on a summer when we're, when we're producing fruit, or fruit's coming in, Two days a week, you need one of those trucks, which is 31 cubic metres, which can pack 100, 100 cubic metres of waste into, or anywhere between 60 to 100 cubic metres. Twice a day, go to two factories. Huge money. So I'm talking 15 years ago. That was huge money back then. So I was charging them an hourly rate of 150 bucks an hour, plus the weight of what we pick up. Pretty honestly, you know. So after the first week, I rang him up. My contract manager and Terry and all over all had deals with him. I said, Herbie, I said, I can't do it anymore. I've been doing this for a week. I said, what I pick up in the afternoon is not a lot and it's not worth worrying about. And he said, those bastards. I said, what bastards? And he said, those bastards who did it before us charged us for 10 years, two days a week, uh, you know, charged them would have been a thousand bucks a truck, probably as a minimum. So it's set apart the relationship, because all of a sudden he's got trust in you. Trust, and it's the biggest thing that we've got, is trust in one another and how we've managed things. So we changed the way that they managed their waste. So we went into every, every, every month, we went and ordered rubbish bins. Every bin had 6% of recyclable still left in it. And we'd go to the department where it come from, pull the people out, this is, this, all this is recyclable. Give them the numbers, give them the facts, feed it back to them. They started to change. Slowly over time, they started to change the way they viewed their waste. Therefore, it starts to change the way back through the factory, saying, don't put that in the wrong bin, you'll, get the, you'll, you'll cop a serve over it, you know? So at one point, they were throwing out bags of fruit that, you know, they'll tip in. So they, they do um, diced apples, I think it was. Diced apples, they pro process it during the apple season, they put it away. And then they bring it out during the winter and they use it for pa they package it during the winter. Anyway, we're doing this bin audit and I was pulling those big plastic bags out that hold that hold in a big fruit bin, you know. And they're still half full of product. And I'm dragging them out of the bin. So I'm in the middle of the bin trying to lift them out of the bin, you know. And we're tipping the tipping the content out, you know. So I rang Herb up, I said, Herb, it's out the back of my room. No, I said, Herb, come over here, we're because I'm he's in shape. So I'm sick of doing this, you know. You know, I'm, I'm covered in fruit, you know, like I'm, I'm riding in a most of hello ladies, you know. And um, 
Anyway, we ended up shutting the factory down and got them all out here. We did the numbers there on the ground on the back of an envelope. $350,000 they'll throw out a year in energy just because of that audit. So it makes them change back through the factory. Now, I've, I've probably done myself out of a job, so 15 years later, I've done myself out of jobs, going back to tender now, and I'll probably get the, I'll get the ask because they'll go to the cheapest, but I've done my job. So, it's some, you know, to try to, they, you know, where they value that, that you know, hierarchy of the history and all those sorts of things, you know, it went from a, you know, $1.2 million a year contract for me, and it's back to about 600000 probably. But we, do, we work 24 hours a day, seven days a week for them in the midst of the season. So, um, yeah, we've done, you know, trucks being bogged out in the middle of nowhere and delivering fruit into fruit waste into farmers who put it back into dairy farms who, you know, and, and the, the, what you gleaned out of that when the droughts were on was amazing, you know. Just the discussion you turning up, me turning up in a truck, footy, what are you doing driving a truck? You wouldn't leave the place till an hour later because I talk too much. But they wanted to talk. So you become the listener. So that was a good thing. So the journey is go to schools. Someone said, oh, you know, teenage kids don't listen to you. Turn to teenage kids. So this is all about uh, let's do a project. This is at the grammar school. Let's do a project, audit your waste, find out what's in it, and let's change your, 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 you know, your, the way you deal with waste when you come to school and what happens to it and all those sorts of things. You know? You go and do it so far and we'll try and encourage the kids. The kids were good and they, got, they took a real interest in it. They didn't follow through on it. So the real opportunity for them was to um, take the grant money, get some grant money out of Sustainability Victoria, blah, 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 put it, introduce it into the school and it would have, kept, would have changed their, their program from now on in. You know? But that was five or six years ago. It didn't continue on. But, you know, if we're going to do something, if we're going to make change, we should make change at that level and drive change at that level. Because you do it at home, the kids, the little kids are doing it at home, do it here too. Because we're not, we're not understanding the value that after we've trained them in this, that we touch every day, the opportunities that are in it. You know, environmental scientists, you know, now electrics, you know, it goes on. 30 years ago, we're at the bottom of the chain, or the bottom of the gutter, no one cared much about you. Gordon Pendlebury owned paints, walls and paper, said to me one day, only young, I was a month into my business. He says, Peter, my mum told me I should invest in anything that someone touches every day. You know this, Alfred, wouldn't you? And he says, uh, I said, oh, okay, what are, you, what are you trying to tell me, mate? He says, touch everything every day. He said, you're in the waste game. I think you'll do all right out of this. He says to me after a month of knowing him, didn't know him from Barrow Safe. But, you know, I've still, I'm still working with that business and have been ever since, you know. And, you know, and it's the same, you know, in Sheb, some business I've been dealing with for 30 years, just on the back of a handshake, you know. So um, it's been really good. Next one, mate. So I started the journey, shifted out of my home, shifted out of my home and, uh, and my business that was and built a shed. Wow, big shed, $630,000 15 years ago. Wow, what am I going to do this? How am I going to fill this up? I had two trucks. Two trucks made this big office and we think, yeah, shit, that's going to take a lot of filling. I've got all these bloody rooms, you know. And away we get, you know, nothing but um, debt that gets you going, I suppose, you know. So we, um, we set about it and our business just started to grow and slowly grow and slowly grow. Every money, every bit of money we got, we put back into the business. We, you know, just the same that everybody's done over the journey. But it's continued. 
that's just that's my oldest boy there now, and that's one of the guys that works for us over in Wingaratta. Keep going, mate. So that truck there, yeah, front lift, front lift, uh, 550 grand. The other truck sitting beside is about $347,000 or $374,000. Yes, $374, so they're big doves. Then you gotta put the bins in front of them. Every bin now costs you $1,700. Every hook lift bin, what we call the really big hook lift bin, that they roll off and roll on. You know, they're running from sort of 10 grand each to you know 20 grand each. So if you're in this, you're in it for a long, a long time before you start getting your money back at, you know, you know, waste now is costing you 100, 140 bucks to empty a, say, a standard three metre bin. To take to the tip, it's costing us 275000 It's $275 a tonne. Every tonne that goes into landfill, $135 of it goes to the state government, into every landfill across the state. You've got a billion dollars, a billion dollars cash sitting in, the, in a bank account. And what's the opportunity of little old us getting out some money that we pay down there, all of us do, it's not just me, I collect it and send it down, how much do you think we get back? Very little. And it's for community groups and all those sorts of things to ask for those funds, but what do we get back? Nothing. Nothing. No, it's very little. Cardinal are in cardboard to Melbourne, so I shift about sort of 60 tonne a week to cardboard. Bought that truck about uh, just, on the, just after, oh, probably 18 months ago, so uh, that's at the back of Vizzy. Um, not all, that, not all that tons go to Vizzy. Some of them go to, or most of them go to a, a, a private guy that I've dealt with for 15 years, sorry, 20 years in cardboard and other plastic. So we've had a, a real journey over the, over the, you know, from you know, prices being up at sky high, the prices being down to nothing, you know. So, okay, this is just at the bottom of our cardboard shed. So this, it's tight, it's small. It's about 800 cubic metres. So it's pretty basic, you know, trucks used to back in. Lift up the back door, you'd push your load of rubbish out. You know, most, people, most blokes hit the roof or hit the door going out or something like that if we don't train them properly, you know? So the cost of, cost of fixing things, you know? Anyway, keep moving. So white paper, sorry, if you just, anyone notice the white paper at the back? So that, that, we used to export that to Malaysia. And newsprint would, would all go to Malaysia. Um, and, it, you know, it's diminished because printing paper and all those sorts of things, newspapers now, no one buying newspapers, so the industry's nearly, nearly come to a crawl now. We can't, we can't process white paper in Australia now. So the last, last place was North Sea Skog over in Albury that they produced uh, newsprint. That's bought by Vizzy. Vizzy just closed it down, shut it down. Cardboard paper just turns back, you know, boxes, just turns back into boxes again. All right, so... Uh, that's pretty simple. Over in, over in uh, Malaysia, they used to make a mile and a half of paper a minute. It's extraordinary. Like the way it goes, a whack of flies, you know. It's, a, it's an amazing place to see. And it's that clean. It's amazing. Amazing. Now, the shed's 25,000 tonne of uh, recycled paper. Hello. Like, it's, as far as your eye can see, it's just paper. Anyway, coming from a little place like this. This is Western Composting. I don't know if anybody in Shepparton, just opposite the, the sewerage farm. So the smell that you're getting in Shepparton, if you lived in, you know, that suburb of east, east, uh, east of Tatura, this could be the problem. It wouldn't be the problem. People say, oh, that's a composting centre. It's not the composting centre, it's a sewerage farm. But um, they manage their product really well. Australian standards, to the Australian standards and, um, and EPA registered and all those sorts of things. So it, in vessel cooks it kills all the pathogens and it's a good business and it's on our back doorstep. It employs probably 10 or 15 people, but the greater, greater employment of building all that facility and all that, it's probably about a six or eight million dollar build, I suppose, if you want to build it today. So 
that's owned by Cryo Waste in Geelong. And he, he was probably at the very you know, forefront of you know, 15 years ago building this, and he won the Shepparton contract. The next tender they went for, they took it off him. And they took it to a, to a place. We're going to send it to Stanhope that didn't have a licence, didn't have Australian best practices, didn't have this. They stipulate that in the contracts, in the tender processes. What they tender for is they tender for this. What they get is nothing like what they tender for. Tried to, you know, you know, 10 years ago, try to set up a food waste run just at restaurants, pubs, clubs, all those sorts of things, you know. Hasn't worked, we've continued to do it, but money will drive the change. But I mean, it actually comes back to education to the people that work in the businesses, how we drive change, you know, so. So yeah, they're putting all this all equipment, that's my shed that I'm in now, you know, lucky enough, you know, 15 years ago to, to do get a sustainability grant, which is at the time, has, uh, shit, I think it was $160,000 they gave me. Um, I had to spend $600. Um, so they give you a third of what, you, what, you, what you, your grant funding's worth. And at the time, I'd, at the time I'd had just won the, count, uh, sorry, the, the contract with SPC, which is you know, 200 steel bins that all had to be galvanised and all those sorts of things. You know, I went to the bank, well, the bank said, yeah, we'll support you. But when actually, when it comes to the crunch, they said, no, we don't, we're not going to support you. And I thought, well, what am I going to do now, you know? But lucky enough, I met a, oh, sorry, the bank manager changed to a different bank and that, that changed our, our course of, uh, course of uh, direction. So that was on two acres. That was our first depot on two acres. Um, now we're just, we're, we're overflowing. We got into portable toilets. My father-in-law said to me one night, Barry Conley, most people may or may not know, remember old Baz, says to me, he says, I reckon we should build, uh, buy some portable toilets, have 50 portable toilets for sale. I said, who would want a portable toilet, Baz? That's the exact words of what I said. I a couple of expletives in it. He said, oh, I think it's probably a pretty good business. You know, he's like this, I think it's a pretty good business. So we go and see the bloke and we met the, and uh, we bought them, we paid, uh, bought 49 portable toilets and they were $50,000. Thinking Christmas time, just before I was about two months before Christmas. Christmas week, I'm walking around and I've washed all these toilets from, from head to toe. They're spotless, you know. And I started counting. I bought 49, there's still 47 sitting in the yard, and I'm thinking, I've, I've bought a dud. What am I going to do with these things? Well, after Christmas, I, was, I needed more of them. I needed you know, another 60 coming, you know, and, you know. And it's been that ever since. It's just grown and grown. So I run about sort of. Oh, we're going to buy another whack now. It's probably up to about sort of 700 portable toilets laying around the country. We do a lot of event stuff where it takes us to, you know, to concerts, you know, all across Victoria. So we go around Victoria, you know, Super V8s, the Mountain Cattlemen's, the BNS Ball, where they spit food die over each other and all over the portable toilets. <laughs> um, you know, the brighter days in in, in, in bright to you know, concerts down at Learn Gather and anyway, it's taken us everywhere into the urban, into the part of Melbourne. Sorry? The taste of Chuchura. The taste of Chuchura, absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Wind up. So I started up a next door, I rented the place next door. I um, uh, started up a building, sortation, construction, sortation, what's the name? So I started scratching around the floor, got some conveyors, cut and shoved, learned it, turned it around, flipped it upside down and got to that. Very simple. Um, every tonne that we put through, we saved half a tonne of diversion. So a lot of timber, a lot of steel, and a lot of, um, you know, just stuff that gets, if you pick up, you know, plasterboard. There's a tonne of plasterboard comes out of every home, waste. What's plasterboard? It's pure gypsum. So we just, we just ground it up, sent it to farmers. So, so that was good. Keep going, mate.
So we learned from up there. Shape was too small, we hit the roof. Peter Foote is an enthusiast and he could have spoken for probably three hours, but the MC, Nicky Freeman, was forced to cut him short. And beyond Peter, those at the festival were to listen to Louise Costa Pell talk about the passive house she and her partner Les have built at Rushworth. Lou introduced the topic, and Les talked about the technical aspects of the house, how it was built, why it was built, and how they hope it will perform. They're not actually living in the house yet, and Lou made the observation that when they do get to live in it, they will have an open day. I made a mistake with the recording and actually recorded nothing. And so, it's my intention to make a point of catching up with Lou and Les and hear about the house, why they built it, how it's working, and what it's like to live in a passive house. That wraps up this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. And until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends. Please don't forget to look in the show notes as you'll find links in there to things that were discussed during the festival.